from Romans 1.1 until now. Uh, Paul is taking the opportunity to really highlight and drive home the point that he is trying to make over and over and over again. Now, if you remember, just in our time in Romans chapter 8, there have been a few things that Paul has laid out that believers are now in possession of because of Jesus. First and foremost, we have the salvation that comes from Christ and Christ alone. But what Paul lays out next is he says, you don't just have that. You've got a new freedom. Remember, right on in, in verse 1, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the implication of that was that at one time there was. At one point in time, the default position for you and I was judgment and under the wrath of God. And we said early on, this is the default for all of humanity. This is what you are born into. And the great substitution takes place in that Christ has now taken this from you and given you his righteousness. And in that comes a brand new freedom to continue on in this life, knowing you are no longer under judgment. You are no longer a sinner, but a saint because of what Christ has purchased. And not only that, the Holy Spirit has now indwelled believers, and we are able to actually live this life out. And so I want to paint this picture for you this morning. God has done everything. It is not as though God has started this work, and now it's up to you to carry this along. Over and over and over again, in Romans chapter 8, what Paul has said that's because of him. You're saved because of him, because of him sending his son. You're able to walk in the freedom because of him. You're able to walk in obedience in this life because of his spirit dwelling in you. So as we lay out the end of Romans chapter 8, we've got to start with this. It is because of him. Totally, completely, forever. It is because of Jesus that you are saved, that you can walk in the newness of life. It is nothing that you've done. So we start from this standpoint as we wrap this up, but, but Paul says now because of that, you've got this new identity now, and you've got an inheritance that will last forever because of what Christ has done for you. And then we get into a section that quite honestly is not really fun to talk about. We get into the section in verse 18 where, where Paul lays out essentially saying, I, I know what life holds. I, I know that life is hard. The reason why Paul lays this out is because he's speaking to a church who is dealing with immense division in their church, but also persecution to the outside. And so he's reminding them, listen, I, I know life is hard. I know there's persecution. I know there's hardship. I know there's trouble. But none of that negates what Jesus has done. And remember, he says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, whatever happens now, and it doesn't change what awaits the believer forever in eternity. And this is what we're living for. And now he comes to verse 31. And in this section, Paul is trying to, trying to, to really drive home everything that he said from Romans 1, 1 to now Romans 8, verse 30. He's trying to get you to wrap your mind around the main point of all of this. And he does this by asking seven questions. 
As a parent, one of the things that I have really developed as a skill is asking rhetorical questions, asking questions that I know the answer to, to to really get them to believe the same thing that I do. And so I can ask questions as to whether you are guilty of this or what happened, and I I can get my kids to initially or eventually tell me what actually happened. I, I get them to see my side of things. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's asking these seven questions to really get you to understand exactly what he said in the previous eight chapters. So he starts in verse 31 by saying this, what then shall we say in response to these things? Actually, let's just read verses 31 to 39 together. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him Graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, in just this section, there are seven questions. Seven questions that Paul asks to reinforce what he's already said. To get the believer to to actually stand in awe of who God is as he asks these questions. And so he starts in verse 31, and he says this, what then shall we say in response to these things? And he's referring to everything that he said in Romans up to this point. What then shall we say in response to these things? If if God is for us, then who can be against us? Much of Romans chapter eight is what I would call this gospel calculation. Comparing and contrasting this life in the flesh with the life that is promised because of Christ. So over and over again, Paul is is coming to this spot of, here's what life holds. Here's what life in the flesh looks like. And yet on the other side of the coin, here's life through Christ. Here is life in the spirit, as Paul calls it. And over and over again, Paul comes to the conclusion that, that these two things are not equal. Life in the flesh is infinitely inferior to the life in the spirit that is promised because of Christ. And so it's this contrasting of people's hope in the world with their hope through Jesus. And Paul's done the same thing in in Romans chapter 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, listen, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing. Again, he's, he's making this calculation He's weighing out what the future holds in eternity and what life holds now. And he comes to the conclusion that no matter how bad it gets, 
No matter what life brings, it does not compare to the life to come for believers in Christ. And so in verse 31, Paul is really recalling all of Romans up to this point. Paul starts in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, with a greeting to the church. He says this in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And so he's addressing a group of people who are loved by God and now are called to be saints, as he was, would refer to them as. But then, just a few verses later, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, there's this shift in Paul's tone. Because now he's starting to talk about man's sinfulness. He's starting to talk about the wickedness. And, and as you compare these two, something doesn't add up. A, a group of people who are called saints and are loved by God and yet 11 verses later he says all of humanity has sinned against God there is no one who does good there is no one righteous and all are awaiting the wrath of God and the question that comes to mind is well what has changed in these two scenarios what has changed in people being bound for the wrath of God to being called loved by God and saints the point of all of this, and the reason Paul frames it this way, is so that you know for certain you are not the hero. You are not the hero of your story. So man's part in the story is, is found in verse 18 of chapter 1. The, the sinfulness of humanity. This is the part that you and I have played in this story. So what has taken a group of people bound for the wrath of God both now and forever and now taken them to the point where Paul says you are loved and are called saints and are bound for eternity with him. It is God. He is the hero of the story. And so Paul wants to make sure you understand this. So it's why he says what he does in verse 31. What, what do we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He's saying if, if God has taken the time to provide for us a substitution in his son, what else, what else do we have to worry about? What else is there? E eternal wrath taken from us? Are you kidding me? What, what, else, what else is there? Well, there's, there's nothing else for the believer to worry about, eternally speaking, if this is true. So he comes to verse 32 and really gives us the, the proof of why we can trust him. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul is using an argument style called greater to less. And the way this argument style works is, is you really hit the major argument first and you try to convince someone of, of this being true and if this is true, then everything lesser that follows has to be true as well. 
let me give you a, a practical example of this because what Paul's trying to say is, listen, if, if God has taken the time to send his son for you, to save you from your sin, then you can trust everything else that has been said, that his Holy Spirit is in you, that he is working to make you new, and ultimately, you'll spend eternity with him. But it starts with the big argument. Some of you differ in this opinion than me, and I I know that. That's okay. I very much dislike Disney World. Very much so. I don't dislike Disney World. I, I dislike lines and crowds and waiting, right? And, and so that's just kind of par for the course at, at Disney World. But I know that over the course of my time as a parent, we're going to go, right? It's just going to happen. I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to waste a year of summer vacation, and we're going to go to Disney World because I love my kids. So one of the things is we've started to look into this. We're still a few years away, but it's a good thing because we're going to have to save up, right? It is thousands of dollars that you have to drop to go to Disney World. And so I know that there's a day coming where I'll save up and we're going to do it. But imagine this scenario, that if we've, we've bought the plane tickets, we've, we've prepared ourselves mentally for the torture that it's going to take to fly four kids to Florida and rent a car and, and get all the luggage. Like we're, we're mentally prepared for that. We've, we've dropped thousands of dollars on the airfare, the hotel, the park, the resort fees, everything that comes with it. And we finally make it. We pull up to the gates, we, we get in, we, we've paid everything up to this point, and, but yet in this part of our, our journey, we're, we're pretty thirsty. Well, as any other place goes, any tourist place, you know that everything is elevated. How crazy would it be of me to, to walk to the concession stand and, and see that a bottle of water, a bottle of water is eight bucks, And I say to my family, pack it up. (laughs) This is it. We're out. Like, this is where I draw the line. I've spent thousands of dollars, but I will not spend $8 on a bottle of water at Walt Disney World. Right? It's, It's a silly scenario. But this is the argument style that Paul is trying to employ here. He's trying to get the bigger picture so that you, you see all of this being true and what follows is the lesser arguments are also true as well. And so Paul says in verse 32, listen, he's, he's given us his son. He's given us the perfect substitution for our sin. He's made a way. He's not gonna do this and then Leave us hanging to figure everything else out on our own. No, if, if he sent his son for us, then you can trust that he's going to follow everything else that he said. The Spirit is going to indwell you. The Spirit is going to allow you to walk in obedience to him. And ultimately, Christ will return and make everything new. You can trust him. And it starts from this place of believing that he did send his son And everything else that follows comes with it. So God has done the hard thing. What he definitely will not do is abandon you now. Why is this important? The reason this is important is because the sacrifice of Jesus should solidify 
our trust in the rest of God's promises. If he sent his son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now Paul's going to come to verse 33. And he starts to make these arguments that really should get the believer to be in awe of God. To see him for who he really is. So as Paul starts in verse 33, he writes this. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. What, what can anybody else say? What sin can anyone else bring up and condemn you with if, if God has already forgiven it? The point of this for believers is for you to be able to walk in the peace of God of knowing there, there is no higher power than God. So therefore, there is no higher judgment than his. And the promise that God has made over and over and over again in his word is because you believed in my son, you're forgiven. And so many times, I see believers continue to walk in, in, in this desire or this this uncertainty of, of how to do something different, but this desire to hang on to their sin or their guilt, to continue walking in the shame. Church, what God has said is, it, it's done. Walk in the freedom that he has purchased because you can trust that what he has said he's done is done. He's given you a son. You are forgiven. Walk in the freedom that comes from that. There is no higher power overruling God's judgment. For those who have trusted in Christ, the judgment is innocent. Not because of you. But again, you've taken on Christ's righteousness. When he sees you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees his son's perfection. Don't buy the lie that you've got to continue walking in shame, continue walking in guilt. It is finished. Verse 34. So who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Again, the rhetorical question that is laid before believers is, well, what condemnation from people or even Satan himself is greater than Jesus' sacrifice? Again, the answer is, there isn't one. There is nothing greater than this. So what charges can anyone level against you? Well, believers in Christ, there are none. There is no sin that, that, that can be waged against you now because Christ has taken it. Verse 35. <clears throat> so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The point of the question that just keeps repeating and, and so many things thrown in there is what Paul's trying to do is, is get you to understand this pretty much covers everything. 
Every trouble that the believer will find in this life is pretty much found in this sentence, in this question. What Paul has said is, well, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is emphatically nothing. There's no life circumstance that will draw you away from God's love for you if you believed in his son. And so many times in the church what I see is we have given our circumstances far too much power. We believe the lie that, that because we're experiencing something painful or because we've experienced something uncomfortable or frustrating that somehow we believe the lie that, that God has abandoned us. Or we believe the lie that somehow we've, we've removed ourselves from his saving grace. What Paul has reminded us over and over and over again is that you are not saved because of you. In fact, you're, you're saved in spite of you. So what Paul is trying to get us to understand here is there is no human element that purchases salvation through Christ for us. It is only through him. And on the other side of the coin, there is no human element that can remove ourselves from the love of Christ. Salvation is only found through him. We give ourselves and our circumstances far far too much power in believing that that house somehow removed us from the love of Christ. Believers in him can trust there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And so hardships and trouble and pain of this life are not an indication that Jesus' love for us has waned or disappeared. In fact, what we see over and over and over again in Scripture is that for the believer... Pain and trouble and frustration in this life has an expiration date. And what we see over and over and over again in Scripture is that Jesus and the joy found in him does not. Verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I brought this up a few months ago, but there's a documentary that, that I would encourage you to watch. If you want a perspective about what our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world face on a daily basis, uh, you, you'll see it in this. It's called Sheep Among Wolves. And in this documentary, it's, it's kind of chronicling this journey of, of believers who have turned from Islam and have accepted Christ and the way they navigate life now with all of its pain, with all of the threats of persecution, and the hope that they have that spurs them on to continue in Christ. And there's a moment where this, this gentleman, his face is blurred out, his voice is changed, his name is removed, uh, so that uh, his, him and his family will not be in danger of persecution, at least in this sense. And they ask him the question that when it, when it comes to torture, when it comes to, to persecution, when it comes to the threat of death, how, how, do, you, how do you keep going? What is, what is spurring you on to continue this journey with Christ, even though it may cost you and your family everything, up to and including your very lives? And this is his answer. The only way 
that I can experience that moment and not crack and not bow. Like Daniel didn't bow and his friends didn't bow to the statue is to think about the age to come. If I think about that in that moment, then what's one day of death? What's 10 days of torture? What's 10 years in jail? What's 40 years in solitary confinement? What's all of that compared to eternity? What has Christ purchased for the believer? Laughing in the face of death. Mocking the coming persecution. Not that we take joy in it, not that we are excited about it, but what Christ has purchased for the believer in him is an attitude of, (laughs) what can you do to me? What's a moment of death compared to an eternity that awaits me? To take my life is to move me into the presence of Jesus that much quicker. The question for you and I is, are we holding life that loosely? Paul writes in another one of his letters to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4. This won't be on your screen, but but he says that this is our, our posture now towards death. In light of eternity, this is what Paul emphatically says. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. You have it. With whatever you're facing, whatever life has brought your way, this should be the response. What, what is my life now? What is this momentary life that I have in comparison to the life to come that has no end? The life that you and I were made for. So God, if, if this life has an abrupt death for me, if this life holds cancer for me, Whatever this life holds for me, (laughs) come what may. It's just a moment. Paul says in verse 37 as we move towards the end, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The picture that Paul is painting is something that was known to that time of, of this group of people conquering another group of people. And if you conquer them, then what inevitably ends up happening is you get their stuff. You get the spoils. You, you get to take over possession of the land. You get what comes with it. This is now yours. What Paul is saying is for the believer... For the believer in Christ, there is life to come and there is an inheritance waiting for you that is yours because of Christ. 
We are more than conquerors because our inheritance doesn't spoil. Our inheritance that awaits us lasts forever. Paul ends with this hope. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Paul wraps up this section, he reminds you and I that the one who is above all, that the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, the one who hung the stars in the sky, the one who told the waters you can go this far and no farther, the one who made everything that we see, the one who built creation, has told those who have trusted in his son, I love you, I've saved you, and I have a place for you. Romans 8 should bring the reader to one of two places. Absolute terror or absolute peace. There really is no third option. Terror for those who are living apart from Christ because for everything that Romans 8 assures believers, it assures the non-believer of the opposite. Romans 8 assures the believer that through Christ we have peace and hope. For the non-believer, those who have chosen to go their own way or have trusted in themselves apart from Christ, Romans 8 promises distress and despair. For the believer, Romans 8 promises life through Christ. For the non-believer, Romans 8 promises death through sin. For the believer, Romans 8 promises that you are slaves to righteousness. In other words, there is no separation from Christ's righteousness that has been given to you. For the non-believer, you are a slave to sin, meaning there is no separation from your sinful nature without Christ. For the believer, Romans 8 has promised future glory. For the non-believer, it promises future suffering. This is what's on the table. As we wrap up this section, wrap up this series, this is is what's on the table. I, I have two main desires as we wrap up Romans 8. For the believer that you would stand in awe of God. That as you worship him, you would see his goodness and his mercy for you. And that you were subjects of his wrath, deservedly so, that this is the default of humanity and you have been snatched from it because of Jesus. 
It is outside of you and your abilities and what you can do to earn it. It is only in him. And, and so as we worship him, not just in song, but the way that we live, my hope is that believers would stand in awe and know God is the hero, not me. Lord, you are glorious, you are gracious, and the life that you purchase is in spite of me because of you. And the other desires for the non-believer, that you would, would hear this truth in the word of God proclaimed, and you would say, Father, I, I need you. I'm recognizing that, that there's something in me broken. I recognize that when Paul says that, that the heart is wicked, that there is no one who seeks God, I, that's me. That you would surrender to him. I, I always want to make it clear so that there are no questions. There is no life outside of Christ. There is no salvation outside of of him. Romans 8 lumps people into one of two categories. Those who have chosen him and will see life and those who have rejected him and will see death. There is no middle ground. And so the hope is that as we see Paul's divinely inspired words that you would fall on your face in recognition that you have nothing to bring nowhere to turn but him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I, I praise your name. Lord, you know my heart. You know my thoughts. You know the wickedness that I'm capable of. I deserved your wrath. I deserve to be separated from you forever. Father, I, I praise you because you have You've called me. You've chosen me. You've justified me and you will glorify me because of your grace and mercy and nothing that's in me. Lord, may we as a church stand in awe of who you are when we recognize the sinfulness of humanity and the righteousness of God and how far apart those two are. Father, may it cause us to renew our, our commitment to, to be obedient to your spirit, to walk in obedience to you. Father, maybe for the first time, would we submit to who you are? Would we call upon your name to be saved? Would we submit to you in obedience through baptism? And Father, trust in the promise that we'll receive your spirit who will guide us and carry us through this journey. Father, you alone are worthy to be praised. 
you are glorious, you are righteous, and we thank you that through your son's broken body and his shed blood, we can be called righteous as well. Help us to walk in that freedom. Lord, it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. One last time this morning, in light of what he's done, let's stand and sing in awe to him.